1: Seb Stafford-Bloor of Tifo Football and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. Whatever the song says, there's more than one Tottenham Hotspur. With Harry Kane, they've got drive, fluency, confidence on the ball. Without him, they're timid, pulsed, ineffective. Here's the irony going into Wednesday's FA Cup tie at Goodison. Jose Mourinho self-consciously seeks to dominate his football club. He staked his reputation on winning trophies. Now Seb, he can't do that without his captain
0: and his talisman, can he? Certainly doesn't look like it, Mike. We're now 14 months in and the difference between a side that contains Harry Kane and one that doesn't is, is actually really alarming because obviously a world-class player and you know a player like that <clears throat> will always make a difference to a football club but for the difference to be so pronounced and for the team to look so lost without him is, is it speaks to something which is really concerning because it it I think it describes the lack of method which exists I mean we, we we've known for a long time that Jose Mourinho's preferred method of attacking coaching is to kind of to is to depend on you know, the attacking players' instincts and a kind of more ad hoc form of the game, and that's fine. But when Kane isn't there and when his set of qualities aren't there and when his abilities to ad-lib his way through counter-attacks, people who watched uh, the game against West Brom will have seen his his little chess control at the beginning of the second goal on Sunday. It's lovely. But without him, it's almost as if the players don't have a roadmap up the pitch. It's alarming, I think is the right word. Mm. What about the essence
1: of his leadership aide, you know, you've been around enough dressing rooms to have presumably come across different types of captains and leaders. His influence is obvious. You know, you look at the the stats. This, this is his seventh successive season with 20 or more goals. 37 goals in his partnership with, with Son. But But stats don't measure his true worth, do they? No, probably not. No, he's he's a genuine leader now, isn't he?
2: He he definitely seems to inspire the players around. And we, we we saw in the documentary that he is quite vocal behind the scenes. Maybe, you know, not a natural speaker as such, Harry Kane, but but certainly someone that the players listen to. I think the main thing with Harry is that the players no matter how badly they're playing, when Harry Kane's on the pitch. They feel that they've got a chance. They feel that he can nick them something, and when that 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 leader, that that main goal getter, is missing, then then that belief wanes. Clearly, that that much is obvious, and we definitely saw this during it during his recent abs, absence. So, so yeah, it's it's two or threefold what what he brings to the table. <laughs> we can see why managers at Spurs have continually played him, can't we? Because because without him, they're they're nowhere near the same. And, and Seb's absolutely right. And what's changed this season is the way that he drops into midfield to sort of create a box there to spring the counters. And I think it's clever when it works because there are quicker players ahead of him, like Hassan, will, will just go into the centre forward position. And he's—I just feel that he's, his his all-round game has never been better. Harry Kane's than it is right now. He's 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 really in a great groove. Given that
1: Seb. Is the temptation to play him regardless, just flog him until he falls apart?
0: Yeah, well, I, I think so. There's two factors here as well. Mike, like, yes, from a manager's perspective, he has to play because your team doesn't exist without him. But also, you've got a player on that on on your hands who, if you ask him whether he wants to play, he's going to play. He also has a lot of sway in that dressing room. He also, like, if you look back over the years. And to this kind of situation, almost with an identical injury, with with the ankle problems that he's had over probably the last four or five years, he has habitually come back a little bit early, and he has generally suffered as a result of that. He's kind of he's a he's appeared back on the pitch. He's been starting prematurely, and it's almost like he's playing catch up game by game. He hasn't had the proper conditioning before being selected, and and also for a long time, you know, Harry Kane. Because of Tottenham's wage structure, Harry Kane needed to play to access the sort of the the bonus clauses within that deal, and to you know to justify his staying at Spurs. So it's it's really tricky. I, I also, I mean, I, I'm trying to draw an equivalent here. I, I I don't know whether it's Wayne Rooney. I'm not sure whether it's probably it's probably a a kind of a result of. Kane's body type he's a heavy guy like there's a lot of pressure on his ankle joints presumably I'm not a medical expert of course but it's it seems dangerous a player coming into his late 20s who's uh, as far as I'm aware and maybe aid's able to kind of to clue me up on this but from everything I've read the ankle is a joint that doesn't just it doesn't regenerate properly. It just gets weaker and weaker with with every injury. And so there isn't really a case for saying, right, well, you know, if we shorten someone's recovery period and we just keep pushing him out onto the pitch because our team doesn't exist without him, that doesn't seem like it's heading for a particularly good end.
2: No, I I know players that play with strappings around their ankles, heavy strappings for for seasons on end. You know, I I did it for spells in seasons. It's par for the course. You can get away with it, providing it's not going to twist every every time you, you, you sort of uh, put pressure on it. So, yeah, you can get away with it, but you're right. I don't think it regenerates like others. I was just going to ask you, Seb, do you think even though Spurs' season in terms of Premier League has, has fallen off a cliff, do you think that he's a real candidate for Footballer of the Year? Because I, I think he's got to be in the mix this year, Harry Kane, for what he's, for what he's produced so far. 13 goals, 11 assists. If he can have a second half of the season as good... It would be pretty special, in, in my opinion. Bruno Fernandes is is obviously a big candidate, but I, I just think that Harry Harry might have more prolific seasons, but I don't think I've ever seen his all round game as as accomplished as it is at the moment.
0: I think you can make a case for him in the in the same way that do you remember when Scott Parker won Footballer of the Year? He, it was kind of contextual that award, wasn't it? He wasn't the best player in the country, but what he meant to his side made him made him kind of credible uh yeah I mean I, I wouldn't say he he's I, I wouldn't vote for him but I I can see the point. one, one thing guys like uh, the one the one parallel that's probably the right one to draw here is Marco van Basten so obviously his career ended before he was 30 and this isn't the same kind of situation we're not having you know fans volunteering their cartilage um <laughs> to prolong his career but there was a really interesting... I read a really interesting interview with him a few years ago where he talked about what happened at the beginning of his career and how he felt compelled to play through pain. In fact, it was Jan Cruyff that kind of convinced him, right, well, we need you to play in European Cup competitions, so I know you're injured, but you need to start games. And that was happening from his early 20s. And I'm not trying to ring any alarm bells, but it's just this timeless reminder. You've you, you got to be careful with footballers. Footballer is a proper commodity. And when it's Kane at Spurs there is no Spurs without Kane at the moment and you you have to you have to respect that and I got a few friends that I was I was texting with over the weekend all Tottenham supporters and they were talking about how they feel a little bit uneasy with the idea that Jose Mourinho at the moment is the one making is is the one making the decision to start him because there's there's a kind of conflict of interest there isn't there because I would say that had Jose Mourinho not won that game over the weekend his job would Rightly be in question. I don't think you can, you know, West Brom are one of the worst teams in Premier League history, this West Brom. So the idea that you've got a player that's been being put out on the pitch because a manager needs to bolster his job security, it's, it's difficult. And especially when a player is is that valuable as well. Mm. Seb, so
1: you've seen this a few times in the past. Where are we in the the sort of usual cycle of positivity, empty flattery, blame, disillusion and then departure that we associate with Jose Mourinho and in that context how important is Wednesday's FA Cup tie at Everton
0: he's reached a slightly surly stage hasn't he, he was after the game last week, I think it was after either the Brighton game or maybe the Chelsea game He was asked by uh, Dan Kilpatrick from the Evening Standard about whether he was under pressure and he gave the usual kind of, yeah, but when did this club last win a Premier League title response? And, you know, maybe I'm the guy to... You know, that kind of behaviour, which I can't tell you how disinterested a lot of Tottenham fans are in hearing that kind of stuff. So we're beginning to hear some of the older hits and some of the kind of the slightly um, sort of more tempestuous answers. I think... I think the FA Cup becomes very, very important because nobody should kid themselves about the League Cup. Nobody should think that you know reaching the final of a League Cup and facing what looks all of a sudden like a very ominous Manchester City side is going to be enough to detract from just how dreadful they've been in the league. They had a good end to 2020. There were some good results. There were some very good results, obviously at Old Trafford and Man City. But to say it's been very disappointing is an understatement. So you need you need not just success you need something to build on you need something to point at and say this is something worth persevering with because one of the one of the refrains during this period is yeah but financial support as it always is with jason Mourinho, it's like well we need another four players there another five over there and and you know after after three transfer windows and 500 million pounds everything will be fine that's fine because that's broadly an imperative in modern football but what i'd say is that you have to have a reason to justify that investment you have to you have to show some kind of competence that's worth building on and at the moment that isn't there beyond Kane and and, you know Kane's partnership with Son there isn't very much to like about that side and so the FA Cup becomes a a means of demonstrating that there is something worth persevering with yeah I suppose you can look to the Europa League and you might get rewarded for that
1: slog through the early stages let's look specifically at Everton if we could aid Dominic Calvert Lewin got them got them a point against Manchester United. Uh, interesting to see um, Ronald Kerman be very complimentary speaking towards him. There's not a Barcelona transfer on the horizon, is there?
2: <laughs> well, they're not in the best best state at the moment, are they? He he, he probably would be. He'd be an upgrade upgrade on um, on Braithwaite, wouldn't yeah. he? Um, look, he's, he's a good player, um, Dominic Calvert Lewin. Very very good player for me. As a centre forward, he's got the full package, and as a number nine, I would put him as a second behind Kane, really, in terms of English talents. You just think about his attributes: he's quick, he's one of the fastest centre forwards in the division, actually, statistically. He works hard, he's a very good finisher, conversion rate's excellent this season, and he's also dynamite in the air, calvert Lewin. So yeah, he's got everything there, and. And this is this has been a wonderful season for him, and and I'm pleased for him because he had that that dip, which coincided with Everton sort of wobbling as well. But but yeah, he seems back in the groove, and yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see Calvert Lewin and Kane on the on the same pitch together again. Obviously, at the start of the season, Everton did a job on Tottenham, didn't they? On the, on the opening weekend, wonderful performance, no doubt they'll be looking to to repeat the trick. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of
1: Calvert Lewin. I think he's going to win a lot of England caps. Mm. I also saw Ray, that you did a piece around Ben Godfrey. Do you think he's been their most effective signing with a, you know, an appropriate shout out, perhaps to the intermittent impact of, of James? Yeah, I mean, Ham, yeah, James has has given them a
2: bit of uh, match-winning quality, hasn't he? But yeah, no, Ben Godfrey has been Carlo Ancelotti's most useful player. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You think about where he's played so far this season. He came into the team at right-back. Or, yeah, right-back, I think it was. Did a job there. Then he got moved to the right side of a back three when Everton went with that. And then Ancelotti went through the Tony Poulis phase of having four (laughs) centre-halves and Beg Godfrey moved to the left. (laughs) And... For the recent game against Leeds, or well, the last two games, he's played centre-back finally within a back four with two different partners. And I'll tell you what, he's looked immaculate in all of those positions. He's he's barely put a foot wrong. Again, quick, calm, got a good defensive nose. I did... I, what I said in my piece was that I can understand why there are comparisons to Rio Ferdinand. I'm not saying he's at that level yet, but but I do think this is a player with great potential. And and Carlo Ancelotti is bringing out that potential now, and yeah, I think I think he will. His value, and he wasn't cheap from Norwich,
1: but his value will have will have soared this season. Mm. Speaking of Ancelotti, Seb, he's targeted the the FA Cup as a, almost a staging post on the way to great glory in the years to come. Perhaps give me your assessment
0: of his time in charge, please. Interesting, because I I break it into two, like the sort of the the tactical, technical aspect and the mentality. Because I remember watching the game over the weekend and thinking, I know there was a very famous 4-4 between these two teams a long time ago, but you remember thinking like, whose generations, Everton side, two down at Old Trafford. I don't think they come back from that. And then when they lose there, when they they go back to 3-2, I think they fold at that point as well if they don't have the same kind of manager. And also, let's be fair, some of the same caliber of players on the pitch. It also reminded me of, the game I was at way before the lockdown which was the the win they had over Watford last season when they put together one of the worst 44 minutes of football I've ever seen and then somehow managed to be 2-2 going in at half time and then they won the game very late on with a Theo Alcott goal and so I, I think that kind of summarizes what I think of them in that like they're not always that impressive to watch and they have off days and they're a little bit little bit unpredictable but they are tougher mentally and they get points in games and in situations which previously they wouldn't have done. I also think it's it's very difficult to to say that they'd be able to attract a player like Hamez for instance or lead the market for a De type where Ancelotti not there because and this feeds into your question about how important the FA Cup is, Mike. If they can make hay in a competition like that, all of a sudden Everton becomes a a destination for players who want to win things. And that's really important. If you want to go on attracting a Hammers type, and I'm not suggesting that they're available all the time, but that kind of player that occupies that sort of space in the game, you become, okay, well, you know, maybe a a Manchester City-Liverpool not going to take a chance on you, but come here and you can actually achieve something. And I think that's really important. And I think Ancelotti is a big part of that. You can't argue with what he's achieved in the game. And he is a winner, I know that's a little bit of a trite description, but that's just the case. And so I think all of these things are sort of calcifying into a tougher, not necessarily more ambitious because they're they're wealthier, but also a a more optimistic Everton, I think is how I describe them. Just quickly,
2: you mentioned tougher mentally. Just look at their results, particularly away from home, not just away from home, but the teams they've beaten, they've beaten Leicester, they've beaten Chelsea, they've beaten Spurs, they've beaten Arsenal. The only big team... Traditional big team, they've lost to is United, and that was at home. Their only two away defeats: Southampton, Newcastle. They had big injuries at the time. Really, a tough nut to crack. And and you can't, you haven't always been able to say that about Everton.
1: True. Speaking of United, Aid David Moyes returns to Old Trafford in midweek. Are you going to give him a bit of credit now?
2: Oh, I have to, well, I have done. I've attracted my past criticism of him before on this podcast. Um, I, I, I didn't back him to revive his Premier League career and he has. And you know what? He's playing an absolute blind this season. You, you, You cannot deny it. I love the way that he's moved from a back five to a back four and it's really settled and, Creswell is, is a player rejuvenated. deserves a lot of credit for that. Obviously, the recruitment of, of Sofal and, and Suchek was was fantastic. Great base. It was a tough decision to to take Mark Noble out of the regular starting eleven, but he did it, and it's it's been the right call. And then the, and then in the positions up front, not with a striker. Obviously, Antonio's is the only striker, but in those three attacking midfield positions, he's, he's got really good competition for places. So they, yeah, they're keeping everybody on their toes. I, I think he's he's ticked all the boxes this season, David Moyes, in terms of doing things right. I even think the decision to bring in Kevin Nolan was a smart one. Obviously, it didn't work out for him as a manager, Kev. But having someone younger inside that dressing room, because obviously there's David Moyes and, and, and Stuart Pearce, Having someone younger in that dressing room, I think it was a smart move. Just someone more relatable to the players that can bridge that generation gap. And yeah, I, I, yeah, they're doing fantastically well. Probably probably go out to Manchester United, but, but they won't just go there this time and hope for damage limitation, as a Moyes team has done before. I think they'll go there a little bit like Everton and be competitive. And that's all West Ham fans want, home or away. Be competitive, try to win. And my criticism of him before was that he was defeatist in his tactical approach, but
1: but that's not the case now. Okay. well, I better apologise for a double red card offence there. (laughs) Um, Speaking of which, uh, we've got to mention Suchek's red card by Mike Dean. Seb, why aren't referees
0: judged on merit? Well, this is a strange thing because the way the, the way the PGMOL selects match officials for um, different fixtures is based on a league table. They rank their individual decisions, and that includes linesmen as well. They go through every decision a referee makes or fails to make during a game, and they kind of have a like an internal little ranking system, which isn't available to the public, of course, and they <laughs> sort of move up and down. I don't really enjoy the kind of the, the finger-pointing. I've been drawn into it probably, you know, as a result maybe of lockdown and becoming... You know, sort of frustrated with other aspects of life, of course. But it's really difficult to defend those two decisions. The the Mitrovic Sućek incident is just, it's. I tell you what, it is. It's it's the difference between is that actually worth a a red card, or is it an opportunity to show one? Because those are two different things. It's a if someone if 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 a kind of member of a public looks at that, I think they they know full well what's happening. Suchek is surely just trying to escape a grapple and there's been a little bit of contact. And Mitrovic, who was all sort of, he went to kind of play a union after the game, well, may, 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 maybe he doesn't roll around on the floor and get the, his, opponent, his opponent sent off. I mean, you can't have it both ways. Like either you're He needs
1: he needs to be called out for that, doesn't he?
0: Well, I, I think so. Like, I, I appreciate the fact that he's gone to bat for Suchek after the fact, but he's also got him sent off, really. It doesn't excuse the, the error of the referee. And... How I still don't understand how the decision's been made, really, but it's um just a very strange incident. It was kind of like a it was like a suspension of common sense, wasn't it? It was I, bizarre.
2: I, I would describe it as laughable, but it's it's the least funny decision I've ever seen because it's it's <laughs> it is worrying. It is yeah. it is alarming that one of our so-called top officials can deem that a red card offence. Now for me referees have got into a a horrendous habit of punishing first the instinct is to punish now for me a red card or a penalty should be kind of the last resort in terms of I'm left with no option that is a penalty I'm left with no option that has to be a red card I think that that the threshold has has gone way too low
0: and and that they're just too eager. They're just too eager to, to make these decisions. I don't know what you guys think about this but and I don't want to come across, I don't want to be the, uh, an old man about this, but <laughs> when I was growing up and when I used to, when I, was, when I watched football on television and when I went to, 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 to football, I always, it was always kind of the unwritten rule that a red card was a last resort. Mm-hmm. It was the thing that everybody wanted to avoid happening and it would happen... Like, I, I know that there's always been bad tackles in the game and that they've always been sending offs for as long as anyone can remember. And, you know, there've always been players that have, have bent rules. Now it feels like we're, we're in a situation where you have to avoid giving an official the opportunity to have a moment in a game. Like, to have this kind of... To, to, to alter the course of a match. And I, I feel like... In a way, you have to reclaim that balance because we don't want to talk about referees all the time. I know it's a little bit of an hypocrisy, because that's what we're doing. But you don't want to have to have this on a Monday morning.
2: Really. I, I genuinely think that everybody at the PGMOl, including the, the the bosses, need to go on a refresher course. Seriously, because they've got so they've got bogged down. They've got they've gone down into this black hole of any kind of minute contact has to constitute. A penalty and 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 red, the red card threshold is, is is so wafer thin at the moment. They they need forget the rule book. They need to 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 take advice and just talk to people in the game, talk to managers, talk to players, talk to former players, get in the room and say, what is this? What is is this a penalty? Is this a red card? And I think they will learn a lot. They've got bogged down in their own
0: bureaucracy, and. And they've never been worse. We're, we're changing interpretations in the middle of a season. I was watching Newcastle-Southampton over the weekend and that Southampton goal, which was disallowed, that would have counted three weeks ago. Like, that is ridiculous. We, we, we've we been normalised to this, this kind of, you know, we'll do anything we can to avoid the mea culpa, which is, right, we'll, we'll change the interpretation. And, you know, this was actually correct because X, Y, Z, but as of tomorrow, it won't be because we've, I mean, it's just nonsense. Like, uh, you can't keep up. And if I can't keep up as just someone that's watching the game, how can players keep up? How can coaches? Like you, can't, you can't do this. You can't tweak the rulebook in the middle of a season because it becomes a competitive... It becomes a credibility issue.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing that we, we're all forgetting or in danger of forgetting, mainly because of, of VAR, I suspect, is that football is a game of human fallibility. And I suppose we've seen that. You know, we accept that in players and it it comes and it goes. If you take Manchester United as an example aid, David De Gea. You know, he has become increasingly fallible. Managers are are judged by big decisions. If you remember Fergie and Jim Layton in the 1990 FA Cup final. Is it time to drop De Gea and give Dean Henderson a run?
2: I think it's time to drop De Gea because Manchester United... Have two number ones. If the number two was was considerably weaker, you'd, you'd, you'd maybe give him another chance. But, but 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 Henderson is so good that that the there can't be too much in it. And I think you you have to you have to be a bit bolder if you're only going to Solskjaer. I've I've loved David De Gea. I think he's been an amazing Premier League goalkeeper down the years. But the truth is, he's gone soft. He's one of the least brave keepers I've seen in many years, actually. And that's and I'm not the only one that can see that. Opposition teams can see that. And 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 he's now being maybe viewed as someone that doesn't fancy it, doesn't fancy 50-50s. When he comes off his line, he doesn't commit himself. He hesitates. So that's the problem that he, he's got to fix. And I think Ollie has got to drum it home to him that that he's you know his his career as a, as a world class goalkeeper is on the line unless he toughens up but yeah for me in the in the short term Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has to make a tough decision and and leave him out. I think Henderson could easily have started this season based on what he did at Sheffield united anyway so so yeah give give him a go he, he hasn't been disastrous but but when you've got a backup as good as henderson it, it shouldn't take that much to to change things
1: yeah is there a sense seb of cracks being papered over, if you think about Maguire's vulnerability on turn, maybe a lack of consistent centre-back partnership, we're still looking for who their best defensive midfield player is. Was
0: Oli basically stating the obvious when he said, look, we're not title challengers? It's hard to say, because I think that's a, a kind of a default answer in that situation <clears throat> for anybody. I mean, Jürgen Klopp was saying that when he was sort of 400 points clear <laughs> last, last season. So <laughs> um I think I think he must be aware that there are needs to there. There are issues within his side, like the defense. Lindelof, he's a funny player, isn't he? Like you, you can watch him in one half and think he's quite convincing, and then there's something quite frank, frantic, and jerky about his style that makes it a little bit unsettling to watch him defend. And I think Salcedo is aware of that. I don't think they they did the business they wanted to do of the summer. Clearly, their main target was Jaden Sancho, and that didn't happen. And it didn't happen at the cost of you know, other things which needed to uh needed to occur. So I I think it's fair and I think he recognizes that there are parts that need to be rebuilt. But I would I would say also that, you know, that's kind of a separate issue to well, how is he managing some of these games? If you look at some of his substitutions and when they come in games and how he responds, hey, listen, how he responds to the goalkeeping issue. David De Gea cost them points at um, against Sheffield United. Whether that goal should have been allowed or not, it's kind of irrelevant. He should have come for that cross, which they which made it one nil. Cost them points at the weekend, which would have put them within touching distance of Man City. So there's a kind of there's a hesitation over some of these important issues, and that seems to be a theme throughout his management. So yeah, there, there's a multitude of issues. There's not one diagnosis for why United aren't quite where they should be, but yeah, the, these are things that need solving. With Manchester City aid, let's not go
1: too far over the top. Well, actually on second thoughts, so let's go over the top. <laughs> um, are they capable of winning all four that they're in? League Cup, FA Cup, Premier League, Champions League? More capable this season than they were
2: last season and the season before because they're not making the same mistakes. Defensively, they're, they're not giving up the chances that that they were. And for that reason, we have to view City as a different beast now. They're no longer just the swashbuckling team going forward. They're also the the team that are hard to create chances against. So yes, well, there'll be overwhelming favourites to win the League Cup, FA Cup. Yeah, I think I think there'll be favourites for that. Obviously, the Premier League they're in they're in pole position. And and this isn't a vintage Champions League, is it? I don't think the European giants are or anything special this season. So, yeah, after what was a really sort of low-key start to the campaign, where none of us were going overboard about them, they're coming with a a quite stunning run, aren't they? And you've got to remember that 4-1 win at at Liverpool, which could have been five, obviously, with a penalty, was done without their best player, Kevin De Bruyne, So, and, and also without a striker. So, I mean... It's a little bit scary, isn't it? The the, the way that they're going. I think that gundawan is is absolutely key in terms of adding those goals from midfield. But not just that. When they don't have the ball, he, he, we know that he can be a defensive midfielder. So so he's the two players rolled into one. Cancelo is is two players rolled into one. He's a right back and also a central midfielder that allows Gundawan to to push on. Foden is a playmaker, a winger, a false nine, all rolled into one. They've just got a lot of unpredictable yet brilliant players. And yeah, credit where credit's due. Pep Guardiola has, has regenerated the team this season and and they're better.
1: His handling of, of Phil Foden in particular has basically proved a lot of us wrong, hasn't it, Seb? He's obviously been following a long-term strategy with him, and was rewarded at Anfield with, with what basically was a coming-of-age performance.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of us got greedy, myself included, in wanting to see him and wanting to see him you know, bedded into that side, probably prematurely, and we've all been proven wrong. I think I, I looked it up last night, and um, I think he's played fewer than, than 60 Premier League games since 2017, which is, I mean, that, that does require some patience when you've got a, a talent like that, but I it was it was it was one of those moments where you just you can't help but be excited when when a player when a player's talent kind of transcends his team and you just think goodness me like the his goal at Anfield was it's amazing to watch a player do so many actions on the ball in such a short space of time it's like a blow it's like uh, Ed- Eden Hazard used to do that like you don't like he would change directions four or five times and then unleash a shot and it would all happen within a split second and no one really has uh, any time to react to it he did that I mean he he did that for uh, for the first goal when he, he kind of knotted up um, Trent Alexander Arnold a little bit and created space for what created the shot that, would, um, that Gundogan would turn in and then did the same on the other side to Robertson who he made he made look like he he'd started 23 games this season he just looked absolutely shattered but you know it was merciless and it was just a um, fabulous performance mm. they're at um, swansea on wednesday aid
1: steve cooper in many ways he's a, a very modern coach nurtured by the development system you know his his england background helps in the recruitment of younger players what about senior pros do they have less respect on uh, on someone from that type of background and do you think he can carry his influence over to the Premier League because Swansea do look like they might go up You you earn your respect as a manager inside the dressing room even big name managers when they
2: come into a new club you're starting afresh because all eyes are on you and players young and old are looking towards you to see whether you know what you're talking about and to see see whether your decision making is good as Steve Cooper has earned that respect at Swansea He's doing a brilliant job. And, and yeah, he's not just a coach of young players. I think that he's, he's a really sound tactician, full stop. And what's impressed me most about Swansea and Steve Cooper this year is the fact that he recognised that they were a bit too raw, a bit too young last season. And he's gone and brought in some more experienced players. Connor Hurahan has come in and been excellent. Uh, Jamal Liu. Who's not old, but but has got lots of championship championship experience. Has come in and been brilliant. Ryan Bennett as well, player that, that sort of hasn't really made it in the Premier League, but he, he's shone for them. And he's blended those guys in with these good young players, and that they're a quality team. Back three, they'll go against Manchester City. It's pretty much always a three-four-one-two with them, and and they're totally in sync. It's one of those teams at the moment where everything's coming naturally. Obviously, there'll be huge underdogs in the game, but but they are in a lovely groove and, yeah, I think Swansea could easily be a Premier League club next season and Cooper could be one of these managers that we talk about in the same breath as as a Graham Potter, really.
1: Well, on, on Graham Potter, Seb, you know, Pep praised him as he's, as his, in his view, the best English coach at the moment. Dan Ashworth his technical director talks about his development of young players and an ability to to play attractive football within a budget. It's going to be interesting on Wednesday at the King Power because it's inevitable there's going to be comparisons made between him and Brendan Rodgers.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I think that's fair. I, I think um, in it might be a little bit premature because um, Graham Potter and, and Brendan Rodgers have, have kind of operated it in different areas of the game there's a kind of overlap now because they're both working in the Premier League but it's it's similar isn't it it seems to be based on improving players and giving opportunities to young players uh, actually I mean there's a you know a, a nice little neat comparison between I know he's been injured but Tarek Lamti on on Brian's right on the right side of his de- on the right side of Brian's defense and James Justin on the left side of Leicester's I think James Justin is an excellent player he's one of the best right-footed left backs I've seen since probably Dennis Irwin. He looks outstanding. It was interesting because I was listening to Steve Sidwell speak over the weekend about about Ashworth's kind of, I mean he had England DNA, I suppose Brighton DNA, where he wanted, if someone was was watching a Brighton game from space, he wanted people to be able to identify who was uh who was Brighton by the style that they were they they were employing with the ball and without the ball and to kind of have that sort of homogeneity of approach. It's very very interesting stuff and I I think Potter is a um Potter's Potter's a really good component within that sort of system. And I'd liken it again to England because Gareth Southgate on his coaching merits probably shouldn't have been England head coach, but he did good things because he fitted the system. And the same is true really of Graham Potter. Like there wouldn't wouldn't be many Premier League clubs that would have said, right, on the basis of your CV, this is where you belong and we're going to give you this opportunity. But they evidently saw someone that could create a a a native culture that could kind of take charge of some of the intangibles that exist within a football club, but could also you know have the kind of... I, I think one of the things that Graham Potter probably doesn't get enough credit for is that he hasn't panicked. So for a lot of this season, he's coached a style of football which has drawn plaudits and produced some decent performances, but hasn't produced many points. And yet, there's no wavering, and I think that's a real coaching strength, especially these days when, like, you're never th- you never less than three games away from from like a tantrum from your supporters, and he's remained very loyal to his own approach.
2: Trust the process. It's the old boring old cliché, isn't it? But I think he's got the players trusting his process, and and the confidence shines through, doesn't it? it when when Brighton play a big team, it, even we saw it against Liverpool, see with that win, they there's no inferiority complex. There's no damage limitation. It's like, we're going to play our game and we think we can be a match for you. And, and, and yeah, he's, he's got, you need everyone on board. But I think the same as what I just said about earning respect, he went into Brighton and earned the respect clearly instantly because within weeks, a team that had played cautious defensive football were knocking the ball around at the back with, with unbelievable self-belief. So yeah, he's, he's a quality coach.
0: Can't deny that. I, I wonder where the. I mean, I, I was watching that game against Spurs a couple of weeks ago. That point about buying aid is is perfect because you 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 saw two teams face each other and no doubt, like on a player by player basis, Tottenham was stronger. And yet you saw the difference between a a team that knew what they were supposed to be doing and believed in what they were supposed to be doing, and a team that clearly didn't. And that's that's a huge that's a huge advantage to have. And. uh yeah, it speaks volumes about the coach that, that his players are acting like that. As does Leicester's performance under Rodgers, who's always struck me as being
1: an underestimated man manager. Yeah, I, I think players
2: players like Brendan Rodgers. It's um, we we take the Mickey sometimes in the media, but I, I like him. I've always I've always rated him. I've always I've always kind of liked his confidence, and I like the the style and of his teams. I really do, and yeah. Yeah, man, man, management. I mean, you don't you just don't hear of any problems, do you, at Leicester? I mean, Jamie Vardy, he's a big character within that dressing room, and he's 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 managed him staggeringly well, hasn't he? And and you know, casper Michael is is a is a, a guy that can sort of manage the team from the back, I suppose. The same with Johnny Evans, but but yeah, Brendan Rodgers, I think is is right up there, pound for pound. I think he's fast becoming, if
0: not already. An elite coach. Do you think maybe the um, the way that he was he was treated by some of the media? I think that did him good. Honestly, I think I think I think Brendan Rodgers' version one needed to have not his his wings clipped, but needed to needed to suffer a little bit of gentle mockery because there were times when his personality was problematic, and there were times actually when I think his personality probably caused a few issues with players. We remember that infamous Liverpool documentary and the things he would say sometimes occasionally they, they set his teams up for fools. That was particularly true at Liverpool. And and the the new version of him, you, you kind of, with all of that stripped away, were able to say, goodness, what a good coach he is and how how effective he is at managing young players. And so it's been to his benefit. I dare say it's been unpleasant at times, but it's it's worked just out just look at the me. energy of Leicester's team. Just
2: just look at yeah, the way exactly. they work yeah. with and without the ball. James Madison's obviously a great example with his enthusiasm to play for Rodgers, but but the not not the other teammates don't speak as well as James Madison. But but just look at them, look at the way they're running around the pitch, working for each other. There's there's a massive hunger there, and again, there's a belief. Leicester, I I firmly believe that that Leicester dressing room believe they're in a the title race. They think they can win the win the Premier League this season, and 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 I think that they can definitely win the FA Cup. If they put their mind to it, so yeah, this, this could be an amazing season
1: for the Foxes. Mm. What about the King of Stand Up, Sean Dyche? Are Burnley durable enough for a long cut run in what's you know pretty much a remorseless season?
0: I don't. I mean, I I think they could be, but I don't think they will be. I think, given their placing in the league, I think, um, and you know, Fulham getting better. I mean, they're not really within touching distance, but they are an improving side. I think for Burnley, especially given their takeover. Priorities are clearly going to be the Premier League. Uh, also, given some of the questions about their takeover and some of the potential red flags that have been raised there, I think it just becomes about league survival again. They could be. I mean, I, I, I would, it would actually be. It would actually be very nice for someone like Sean Dyche to to win an FA Cup because that group of players is very capable of at least getting into a quarter or semi final and then being in the draw. I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but you could see something happening. I mean, they they cause upsets on a regular enough basis in the premier league to be a contender in, in a cup competition but i i think it will come down to resources and and ultimately having a, a relatively narrow group of players you've got bournemouth at turfmore on tuesday one of the nice
1: nicer stories over the last couple of weeks has been jack wilshire a couple of goals as he's bedding in at bournemouth no one's ever doubted his talent aid what sort of career do you see ahead of him? Oh, it's a good question.
2: It, it, it all depends, doesn't it, on his body and, and how it stands up to the rigours of, of regular football. When he's fit and healthy, he's, he's a classy midfielder. We know that. We saw that at the weekend. I don't know if you've seen, seen the Bournemouth goals. Wonderful assist, just slips past a player and plays a through ball for, for one and, and scores actually with a header, with, with another you know, this is a player that didn't have a club, unbelievably, and, until a few few weeks ago. So now, I mean, I, I love the fact that he's been humble enough to take the chance at, at Bournemouth and to to try and rebuild. and And who knows? He we might yet see him in the Premier League again. We might we might see him. It's it, it just depends. Talent wise, he's good enough. It's just about whether he can he can stay fit. But look, this will be an interesting game because for me. Bournemouth have a better or have the equal of Burnley in terms of attacking talent. You, you, the players that went down, and a lot of them stayed. You've got, you've got Brooks and Wilshere and you've got a lot of others there that, that are more than capable of, of causing Burnley problems. The difference for Bournemouth is they don't have Burnley's defence or organisation. They, they've been a bit shambolic at the back. And, and I think that's probably why Jason Tindall lost his job, even though I thought it was harsh. A lot of Cherry supporters when I tweeted that got on got on my back, and were saying no, we've been, we've not been very good. So, yeah, interesting game and a bit of an audition really for, for Jonathan Woodgate. I don't know whether he's in the frame to, to to get the gig permanently, but but he's got an opportunity to to cause an upset. And do you know what? It wouldn't surprise me if Bournemouth did cause an upset here because Burnley haven't been a cup team under under Sean Dyche. Mm-hmm.
1: What about Barnsley? There are singular club usually punch above their weight surely they're not capable of upsetting chelsea are they they're a nightmare to play against mike they honestly they i mean
2: obviously talent wise not you know not on the same level as as chelsea but they're the best pressers in the championship they will swarm all over chelsea given the chance and 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 make life hard for them they've got some good players uh, Woodrow up front is a match winner. Mauer in midfield, I like left wing back Styles. They've got talent. Yeah, unfortunately at the back, the back three. I I think they they could get torn apart really by by a team like Chelsea. So so yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't give them too much hope. But but for half an hour, maybe forty five minutes, they can they can frustrate Chelsea. But beyond that, I, I don't think so. Mm,
1: the other type. It's sort of the crisis of confidence derby isn't it said southampton at wolves on thursday
0: southampton still looked shell shocked to me as you'd expect i think i don't i don't know what it is to lose a professional game 9-0 unfortunately i had a few experiences of that like schoolboy football it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't great there either in front of like six people uh, i think i think what alarmed me actually about about saturday was that um they didn't actually have a, a shot on target after Newcastle went down to nine men. And I know it's difficult to play against a low block. I know that gets a little bit harder when you're playing on a sodden pitch and you can't move the ball around quickly enough. But the the same kind of chemistry, like Danny Ings has kind of dropped off in potency. Shea Adams has actually greatly improved from last season and his link-up play is a lot better than it was. But it's not quite the same. Nathan Redmond isn't quite in sync. I know he's had a bit of an injury. So it, it's difficult. Wolves, I've got fewer concerns about. I think William Jose is has uh, made a difference. I know he hasn't scored yet, but they've looked like a more cohesive attacking unit since he came into the side. I think Pedro Neto is starting to play really, really well. He's been one of my favourite players to watch this season. And the defence is steadily improving. You know, Wolves could very nearly have nicked that game against Leicester and they were in it all the way through. Were it not for like a Kasper Schmeichel save, then they would have done. So I, I don't know. I, I think Wolves are on their way out of it. I think you're right, it is a little bit of a crisis of confidence, Derby, but two stay at two teams are different stages of their recovery from it. so um I quite like wolves to Nick it, and i it's funny, isn't it, because i I'm a huge fan of Ralph Hassenhutle, and that's probably the only time I've ever said that about a manager that's lost two games nine 0 in the Premier <laughs> League, and it's just i what is the fatal flaw there? like what is the kind of where is the susceptibility? because it's not just getting a man sent off, that's not an excuse to lose. By nine goals it seems like a it seems to describe almost a stubbornness of coaching I think mm. they started to
2: feel sorry for themselves in, the, in that game and yeah maybe because the, they've got no options on the bench injuries have hit them massively yeah I think they just felt a bit hard done by and yeah it was worrying how they collapsed again well for Wolves so for Southampton the injuries have definitely dented them and their consistency at the back but Wolves are starting to get players back. I noticed Johnny, the left wing back, played Danny against Leicester, and I think that, that Johnny makes a big difference. They, for me, Wolves have to be back three. They have to be a back five team. They've, they've they've tried out the back four, but they don't look the same. I mean, Arsenal should have been three up before they, you know, before what happened happened at, at Molyneux. that they were quite worrying Wolves. But but when they
1: play in a back three, I'm I'm far less worried. One other tie. Sheffield United against Bristol City. We almost forgot Sheffield United were playing Chelsea on Sunday night because it was obviously overshadowed by the fallout from Liverpool's defeat by Manchester City. Seb, looking at that, do you think now Liverpool will concentrate on the on the Champions League? And if you look at some of the, the, the flaws in that performance, specifically Alisson, is that the sort of game you just bin it? It's, it's, a, it's a distraction. You've made your mistakes. You know, there's there's not that much to learn from them.
0: Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, it, there were a lot of mental mistakes in that game, not just from Alisson. I thought some of the sort of the defending out wide was really poor. The inability of the midfield to protect those two fullbacks was really disappointing as well. I'm, I'm split really, Mike, because in one sense, yes, you need your goalkeeper to forget he's had a day like that fairly obviously and for obvious reasons at the same time though I wonder whether there aren't some things to take from it which is that I I don't I don't know whether this is I don't know whether Jurgen Klopp has handled this period particularly well and that's said with all deference to what's been achieved Liverpool have had a magnificent three years and what he's done in that city is amazing and none of what I'm about to say affects that nevertheless I feel like there've been a few too many attacks on broadcasters a few too many spiky interviews i felt like his his barb about manchester city's two week break was maybe fair maybe you know entirely justified and he had a point they did have an easier schedule but is that really the best way to prepare a group of players for a game like that is kind of to give them the ready made excuse i don't know enough about psychology to answer that properly but what i do know is that this has been a different jürgen klopp to the one we've seen over the last few years, and that the character that he's played, the character that he's been, and the kind of the the effect that he's had on the players, it seems different to what it was. And now you're seeing players like Virgil van Dijk, for instance. I think is as talented a centre half as I've seen for a really long time. And the effect of his loss is not just felt in in, in defence. I mean, you don't just have a hole in 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 the centre of your Backline because he's injured, you feel the effects in your distribution and the way that you plot your way up the field and your exits and also all the intangibles he's a leader he's a player that other players are inspired by and nevertheless it's felt like a it's felt like a much bigger problem than it needed to have been and again that that's I, I accept that there have been other players missing but it's been it feels poorly handled I don't know if I'm being harsh but it it, it and and maybe this is yes an afternoon to forget but also Maybe there's something to learn from what happened over not just in that game, but the games prior, the losses to Brighton, the losses to Burnley. Liverpool have enough players to survive those games and to have produced better performances than than they ultimately did. And it, it it's not a terminal situation. That's not been melodramatic, but I feel like something needs to be tweaked. There. Mm. They've got eight days to prepare for the Champions League leg against, or
1: first leg against Leipzig. That's going to be in Budapest. Aid. Is that modern football? No fans, so you can play anywhere? Yeah, I mean,
2: we we kick off at times that we never thought we'd kick off at, don't we? You know, six o'clock kick-offs. I mean, that was unheard of before. It, we just got to adapt, haven't we, to the situation. It's it's not great, is it, for the integrity of the competition? It, it certainly won't help Leipzig, you, you'd imagine. And, and it's never good when politics, you know, international politics sort of interfere with... With Football, but but we you know if we want to play on in a pandemic, we've got to just take these things on the chin and and right and roll with it, haven't we? It's just, it's just one of those things. It should be a good, good tie because both teams have mistakes in them this season, and and, and you would imagine it, it could be a, a two legger that f- features a few goals.
1: Yeah, talking of modern football, Champions League proposals for 2024 are going to be talked about on Tuesday a meeting of UEFA the proposal is you've got 36 teams all playing 10 games before the knockout phase just let's end by just running through this Seb is this the
0: greed league mark two of course of course it's we want a bigger share of the cake bigger share of the pie it always has been that it's you think about what 10 games would actually look like in reality and how it would potentially disenfranchise you know a big proportion of fixtures it would make you know create a whole load of dead rubbers potentially then it's not in the interest of the fans is it i mean it's, it's also not in the interest of supporters to build in another set of european away days in the middle of a week during okay so times are a little bit unusual at the moment but under normal circumstances which we'd hope it would be by 2024 Another set of flights, another set of hotels, another set of long train journeys, another you know set of huge costs. Whose interest does this serve? I like, is it is it is it the fans that have been part of a club's journey to this level of the game, or is it sort of a generic imagined fan from anywhere in the world who can just as long as they can pay the bill, that's all that matters, and as long as they're you know uh buying the uh official betting partners and the official beer and the fi- this is not how it's supposed to be i know i get really ranty whenever this comes up but it just winds me up because it's it's so so selfish the next, yeah. and there really is no other if word for it
2: any of our clubs vote for this the next time they dare to moan about player welfare about overplaying their players and about fixture congestion I want an interviewer to, to throw this back in their face. Yeah, but you voted Spot You on. voted. Spot on. for 100 extra matches in the Champions League. It would go from 125 games to 225. You voted for that. Surely you now forfeit the right to complain about player welfare because it just doesn't sit right with me in this time where we're really worried about footballers and we need to protect them because we're going to burn them out, we're going to shorten their careers... Lumping on a load of extra games is is just not on, in my opinion. It's greed
1: gone too far. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Just bear with me on this one. Try and think of the Champions League as a as a luxury car. The sort of car that we can't afford, probably. It's got all the bells, all the whistles. It accelerates from naught to 80 in a blink of an eye. Now, what would happen if simply to make more money the makers added a fifth wheel. Performance would suffer. It would look silly and customers would be driven away. Now, that's exactly what UEFA is planning to appease the biggest clubs. They should be careful what they wish for and they should leave the Champions League as it is. It's not perfect, but it's pretty serviceable. Do you agree? Please let me know And in the meantime, thanks to Adrian and Seb and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.